Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. It's a little bit early here in the United States, uh, but we've got a special guest coming to you here on the Project Purple Podcast all the way from the UK, I believe the UK, across the pond, I should say. Uh, I've got a special guest, survivor, pancreatic cancer survivor, Bryony Thomas. Bryony, thank you for joining the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you, Dino. Delighted to be here. Yes, I am here in the UK, um, near Stroud in the UK, for those of you who are into your geography. Where is Stroud? It's a little north of Bristol. It's in the west of England. Okay, okay. So like below Manchester? Yeah, below Manchester, um, below Birmingham, uh, but not as far down as Bristol or Cornwall. <laughs> I gotcha, I gotcha. And, and we're not in Wales. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've a quick tidbit. Uh, Years ago, eons ago, it seems like now, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we went over to Scotland and then we thought it would be a great idea. And this was for work for me to traverse, uh, drive down all the way down to London. So we we jumped in a car. (laughs) You're laughing because see, you know. (laughs) So we jumped in a car out of Glasgow and uh, we drove. And originally the thought was like, hey, uh, my wife's Irish. She's half Irish, half Italian. Let's go over to Ireland. And I saw, oh, there's the ferry from Manchester. And so we we got to Manchester and we were so tired. I, I think we I, I don't think we we realized like how long this trip would take. Um and we were just like, all right, there's just way too there's just way too much we want to do in the UK yeah. to go over to Ireland. And we never made it. So we got to Manchester. It's a running, it's a running joke here that when when our American friends visit. They always say, oh, great. Now I'm in the UK. I'll, I'll just pop to see my friends in Scotland from Cornwall. It's a yeah. running joke yeah. that Americans don't appreciate that we're actually, although we look small on a map, um, to go from Scotland to Cornwall will take you eight hours. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. We learned that lesson yeah. really quick. I thought it was like, yeah. ah, three hours. You know, ah, we'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. So we ended up staying in Manchester overnight. I had a panic attack. Uh, not a Not a real panic attack, but I just panicked and I was like, Hun, I don't think we can do this. I don't think we can get to Ireland and do three days and then come back and then spend the quality time you want in the UK or in, in London. So we just slept in Manchester because we were so tired uh, from the drive. And then we just, you know, booked it down to, down to London and just spent the majority of the time in London. But yeah. Beautiful country. Yeah, you could spend a year and you could spend a year in London and still not do it all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just a small small story there in for you. So I probably probably drove through Stroud or by Stroud at some point Possibly. 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, let's get into this podcast. Um our first part of our segment here um with all our podcasts is our guests opportunity to share their journey with pancreatic cancer. And what I always say, Bryony, is it's up to you. You can go back as far back as you want. You can say as high level as you want. With that, the mic is yours. Yeah, so um, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer on 19th of December 2019. Uh, at the time, my daughter was eight and uh, we were preparing for Christmas. I had a few presents left to do. I had just finished off my last speaking engagement of the year. I'm a, I'm a business conference speaker and um and i was about to take on investment for my business to to grow that i was about to do big exciting things um and 
in the in the kind of fortnight leading up to the the day of my diagnosis, which was the nineteenth, I we had some friends over, and that day I'd been to the gym and I just couldn't finish my workout. Didn't really know why. Just didn't fancy it. Um, went home, had dinner that night, which I ate well. And then I woke up in the morning, they were all going out for breakfast and I just didn't want to go with them. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to eat anything. Um, and probably for the following week, I barely ate anything. Um, and my urine went increasingly dark, although I knew I was hydrated. And I remember, I think it was on, on the Tuesday of, of the week in which I was admitted to hospital. I said, I said to my son, do you think I'm going yellow? And I said, no, I think so. He was, you know, husbands, um, don't notice if you've got your hair cut, don't notice if you're going yellow. Um, I said, no, I don't think so. Uh, and then the Thursday of that week, I went to my GP. Um, I gave her a urine sample, which looked like stewed tea without the milk in. So like black tea, it was dark. And I knew that I was hydrated. She sent me home with antibiotics, telling me I had a urinary tract infection. And I thought, no, I haven't. <laughs> that is not true. Um, I know the symptoms of a UTI and this is not it. Um, so that was the Thursday. But Saturday morning, my daughter had a dance show, Christmas dance show. I really wanted to go. But when I looked in the mirror morning, I absolutely shut my eyes were yellow. And I said to my husband, right, let's, I'm going to come to this dance show. Um, and I called, we, we've got an emergency, like a, a kind of, semi-emergency phone line in the UK so 999 is if you're dying um, and we have 111 um, which is I think I might possibly be dying but not immediately um, so I called 111 and they and they said right we'll get you to an, uh, an out of our doctor which we did and he agreed with me it wasn't a UTI and the next morning I called again I was even more yellow uh, and they admitted me to hospital so and then four days later, I, I got the diagnosis. Though, you know, Dino, when I look back, so that's the acute window. When I look back, I think I have had symptoms of pancreatic cancer that if I had known about them, go back five years at least. So I went to my GP, my general practitioner, which is a kind of um, doctor in, in the UK, and with fatigue it started with fatigue but it was around the time that my dad had died and um, he had esophageal cancer and they kind of put it down to having a toddler and grief and all that sort of stuff I went back with fatigue they tested me for thyroid they tested me for sleep apnea they tested me for celiac I was also getting bloating and then none of those came back and I think they just basically said well we've looked at all the obvious things you're you're in your late 30s you know you're in your 30s um you've got a young child you're very busy time to look at lifestyle factors and sent me packing really um and I think the one that would possibly have joined the dots is to have asked me very unambiguously about my uh about my my poo I mean the UK we say poo I know you say poop um uh, if my doctor had asked me really unambiguous questions rather than euphemisms like how how are your bowels how are your emotions and um has there been any change those sort of non-specific vague questions 
I think if I'd been asked very specific questions about the colour, the consistency, the frequency, whether it flashed away or not, I think we would have got there. That's interesting. I, I mean, it's interesting and it's frustrating, right? And, and I think that globally, we have this issue. Us as a, an awareness organization, you know, we, we talk about awareness. And before we hit record, this is why we do this podcast is to raise awareness. But then to hear you talk about, you know, your general practitioner and having these just vague questions, right? And, and yeah. in essence, like that could be a game changer in a sense if the questions aren't as vague. Yes, and I'm I'm about to um, kick off a campaign. I've been having conversations with various charities here in the UK um, to do a, a campaign called Clue in the Loo, um, hashtag Clue in the Loo, uh, and to, to get a questionnaire created that asks unambiguous questions about digestive health. So that like we have a very well used um, uh, doctor's reception based questionnaire on fatigue here in the UK. It's been very well tested. It's been it's rigorously put together by medics as a diagnostic tool for doctors. Now, I would like to see a digestive health questionnaire um, in a similar way. And I think it achieves a lot of things. I think it takes out the embarrassment, you know, ticking boxes about the color of your poo or poop is probably a bit less embarrassing than than having that as a spoken word conversation. Um, and I think it also allows people to be more precise in the questions they're being asked. And so I, what I would like to see is if people are going with vague symptoms, like fatigue, like bloating, like indigestion, like um, uh, non-specific back pain, um, that they do perhaps a two-week um, kind of survey of what's in the toilet um and that informed diagnostic pathways yeah I, I love that concept and we've talked about not specifically this but we've talked about the whole gi issues right and we've had a, a lot of survivors on the podcast that their main system was gi issues yeah and you know and, and i think this is part of the the you know in this you know, circle of pancreatic cancer advocacy. I think this is like one of the biggest frustrations is the vagueness of the symptoms, right? Like we can't have like a symptom like a lump, right? Because of no, where no. the pancreas nothing is. Nothing to see, nothing to feel. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's ultra, ultra, ultra frustrating, right? Because yeah. the, the, the medical community, I feel, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> like I was talking to a patient the other day and, you know, we were talking about very similar route here in the sense that, you know, you get 10 minutes with your, with your GP, maybe max, yeah. right? So th they're trying to see, you know, 50 to 60 patients a day, at least here in the United States. And I, and I, I'm stereotyping, yeah, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same, you know, that the systems are so overwhelmed right now we're in this global pandemic and, you know, now they're, they're dealing with that right on top of their normal caseload, if they can see patients. So, and when they can see patients, they're trying to cram everyone in. So maybe you get 10 minutes max. But the vagueness of, you know, hey, 
fatigue, everyone's fatigue, right? You you just had a child, you got a, a high level job, you got a family, like everyone can say they're fatigued, right? Because of the lifestyle, the stress, right? Of the pandemic, right? Everyone's got stress of the pandemic, trying to find, you know, here in the United States, trying to find kits or dealing with the, the, the pandemic in yeah. itself. You know, bloating, you know, it could just be what you ate. Um, and then, but the digestive piece is really fascinating because We've talked about it. I had one guest on the podcast, and I, I remember this because this is, you know, as crazy as, as as this idea may sound, could be something that could be a game changer, which would be to have your toilet do diagnostics. Yes, yes, I've heard of this. I've of, heard of this. Of your yeah. bowel movements. And yes. everyone thinks, ah, oh, that's gross. And, and maybe that's part of like- It's brilliant. It's it's a great idea, right? Because that will tell everything, right? It will tell you well, everything. Well, this is why this is why I want clue in the loo. Yeah. So, I, so I there are all sorts of issues here. So, first of all, I think living with digestive dysfunction has been normalised. Yes. You know, I think the um, the marketers of and I speak as a marketer. You know, the marketers of indigestion medication have a lot to answer for in terms of normalizing reflux and you know just saying oh you know take a tablet if you if you're taking indigestion tablets routinely you have a problem correct yeah if you're having um if you're having bowel movements that are um you know that are that that regularly float that are um unformed that are approaching diarrhea you know it you have a problem um, and that problem might be that you're eating too many takeaways. It might be that it's pancreatic cancer. The, the point that I would like to make about digestive health is that digestive cancers, pancreatic being one of them, um, is are called silent cancers. They are not silent. They whisper and you can tune into it if you understand what digestive health should be and you don't normalize digest digestive dysfunction. It is not okay if you are having diarrhea. And, you know, I, I regularly, I talked to someone the other day and I said, you know, what the way that this manifested for me as a speaker is I would often have um, diarrhea before going on stage. And I thought, oh, okay, that's because I'm a bit stressed. But it's not okay, right? It's not okay to regularly have diarrhea. If it's continually happening, something is wrong. And if you were, I don't know, if you were, um, if you had tonsillitis every month, you wouldn't say, oh, that's all right. Yeah. You know, if you had um, heart palpitations regularly, you wouldn't say that's all right. And it's not okay to normalize and accept ongoing digestive dysfunction. Something is wrong. Might be a lifestyle, might be cancer. The point is, if we understood and were alert to digestive dysfunction, then we would spot it. So these cancers are not silent. We just choose not to talk about them. A, because we're embarrassed. B, because it's been normalized and marketed to us as normal. Three, because we're busy and we don't tune in these days. We're not mindful about our bodies. When we're, you know, we're, um, we do things that are abnormal to our me metabolism, like we get up stupidly early and work into the night and don't have lunch and, you know, all of these things. And so actually we have chosen to not listen to what our bodies are telling us. These cancers are not silent. You just need to tune in. 
That's so powerful. Uh, what you just said about, I mean, there was a lot of golden nuggets in there, as I'll say, but you know, the first one is just tuning in, you know, and, and listening. And I, I think that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And, but it's the same, isn't it? Is it not as the, you know, the, the awareness campaigns that, that say to us, check your testes, check yeah. your breasts. Um, <laughs> if you see a mole that's wrong, do something about it. And I think we should add to that list, look in the toilet, understand what's there, you know, just normalize understanding and keeping an eye on your body. And I think keeping an eye on what's in the toilet and knowing what it should look like, what, what does healthy poo look like? And if yours is not that, be alert. You know, it's not every lump on a breast is not cancer. Correct. Every floating poo is not pancreatic cancer. But when you tune in, to your body and there are trends and it, there are things that are persistent. The, the thing that I've been saying recently is that if your systems persist, you must also persist. And I think one of the things that happens with, um, with vague low level symptoms is that they become normalized in our life. We adjust to dealing with them. We have our coping strategies and we do not persist in getting them looked at. And so when I had been going to my doctor with fatigue, 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 and when I say fatigue, I mean things like I didn't go on family holidays. Hmm. You know, we're due to go away for the weekend. My husband's ready. Everything's packed. We've got the plane tickets. And I say, honestly, darling, I can't go. I just can't go because I am so tired. You know, and I, but I didn't go back to the doctor and say, I've just not got on a plane with my husband because all I wanted to do was sleep. Because I've been battered away, battered away, battered away, and I should have persisted. If the symptoms persist, you persist. It's powerful stuff. I, I want to get back to then. So you get this diagnosis, right? And from the timeline, I mean, that's pretty quick. Oh my goodness, the speed at which everything moved was incredible. And I have nothing but admiration for the team of people that came together. Um, it mobilized really. So the 19th of December, I'm in Southmead Hospital in Bristol. There are two major hospitals in Bristol. Get the diagnosis. And I was on the operating table 14 days later, 2nd of January. Um, and, you know, in those two weeks, what, what I know, five of those days are bank holidays. Um, you know, so between the 19th and uh, 19th of December and 2nd of January, I had a week in which um, they thought I w wasn't operable. So the the when it was first found, it was considered borderline. My tumour was wrapping my portal vein. Um, so initially, when, when I got my diagnosis, it was it might be operable. And I said, how might is might. And I think it's time to get your affairs in order is the you know the kind of euphemistic bit in the UK about you are going to die um and I said you know if I'm not operable what do you think my prognosis is uh about 12 weeks so I go home on the 20th of December ahead of Christmas with my eight-year-old um and I, ha and I have to tell her you know I have to tell her I can't I lost my own mother when I was five um, and that my grown-ups 
decided that it wasn't right for me then to to know some of the details and they never quite found the words as I grew up and so I found out things about her death as a teenager that were very difficult for me and so I took the decision to be very honest with with my daughter um, and so my husband and I sat her down and said um, you know you know mummy's been in hospital um, they they have worked out what's wrong and she said it's not cancer is it he said yes it is and she said, are you going to die? So first question. I said, I might, my darling. I might. We're hoping there might be a way through. All the doctors are working on it. But that might happen. Yeah. And so that Christmas, um, so she learned to ride her bike on Christmas Eve. And I really thought it was um, the last first <laughs> that I'd see. Excuse me for getting emotional. I'm sure everyone will understand. And the Christmases, you know, we we opened gifts and we did the food. And, and my husband and I looked at each other and every time it was, gosh, this is the last time. And then on the um, 27th of December, which was a Friday, I knew that the multidisciplinary team was meeting to determine whether I was operable. And it went past 5.30 and I thought, oh, they're not going to call me today. I'm going to have to wait till Monday. And it was 5.37pm when my phone rang and um, the doctor at the BRI, the other big hospital, said, we've decided you're operable. This was the 27th. He said, you're going to be the first stop of the day on the 2nd of January. That was it. I had... A weekend and a couple of days to get ready. So um, New Year's Day 2020, I wrote letters to my husband and daughter, should I not come home, and went into the operating theatre on the 2nd of January. It's a 14-hour op. Obviously, portal vein involvement was considerable. My understanding is there was some discussion uh, during my op as to whether they should continue. And my surgeon, um, Meg Finch-Jones, who's an incredible woman, um, she's about five foot four, she looks like a little elf, um, incredible woman, uh, and you know, very softly mannered. And I think, I, I think she, she fought to persist you know, and, and continue, and they got everything out. Um, histology was um, clear margins, including away from the vein. They had to take a sliver out of the vein. Mm -hmm. um, and I had three affected lymph nodes out of the 27 that they took. So my immediate three lymph nodes were affected, uh, but not metastasized. Um, and so the, the standard treatment here in the UK then is um, adjunctive chemotherapy, yeah. um, which I started a month, a month after my op. Wow, that's pretty quick. Uh, it was insane. Because usually, I mean, you, so you had a Whipple, right? The Whipple. Yeah, full and, Whipple. Yeah, full Whipple, which, I mean, 14-hour surgery, that's no joke. I mean, that's as long right. as it gets. Um, so the recovery, though, I mean, you must have still been not fully recovered because sometimes oh, gosh, it takes no. months and months to recover from the Whipple. I know they want to try right. to get the chemo in as quickly as possible, but that's not long. No, it's not. I mean, my recovery was very smooth. I had no leaks. I had no no complications. 
um, they did have to open up the wound a bit to, to let a little pooling blood out. Yeah. Um, so I came home with a with an open wound that had to be packed. And they just wanted to make sure that that was fully closed before I went into chemo. Uh, you know, I was I was 41. I went to the gym. Um, I don't smoke. I barely drink. I um, have had a good diet all my life. I'm not overweight. You know, my 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 recovery was was good. And you know, um, all indications, you know, my tick list, I shouldn't have got cancer. Right. But here we are. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever look back? I mean, so you do. Well, let me ask this. You do the chemotherapy then. Did you yeah. what was it? Twelve rounds? It was twelve rounds. I managed eight, um, and they stopped at eight uh, because I was starting to have um, convulsions whilst being infused, um, and my neuropathy. So my hands and feet were very particularly affected, and they thought that if they continued, that would be significant damage to my mobility. So we're now um, two years on from my Whipple. Um, I still can't really feel my feet on hands. Um, I, I don't think that's coming back. I have to adjust to to the reality. Um, affects my typing. Uh, walking I, was a real struggle for for quite a while. And one thing that really surprised me is that my neuropathy increased even after finishing chemotherapy. I didn't realise that was a thing. Um, but I've now found that that really is is a thing. So mm. you 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 finish your chemotherapy and for a period, the neuropathy continues to get worse um, and often is permanent. And again, I hadn't realized that either. Um, when I was having the tingly feet and the tingly hands during my chemotherapy, I, I barely mentioned it to them because I didn't. I thought it would just go away when I stopped taking it. I hadn't realized that it caused permanent nerve damage. Um, and perhaps I would have said something sooner about the level of neuropathy I was experiencing if I had realized that that sensation was actually nerve damage happening. Um, I don't think anyone actually um, talked me through the mechanics of that. And so I didn't know to, to shout about it. Um, and so walking was really difficult when I finished my chemo. Um, I think now, I don't think my neuropathy's improved. I think my brain's caught up. Um, you know, like if you, I don't know, you've got a new pair of glasses or whatever, it takes a little while and then your brain kicks in. I, I think my brain now knows where my feet are um, based on the sensory feedback that I get. Uh, but initially I was, you know, I was tripping up steps and finding it, finding it very difficult. Um, yeah, I know. These are the things we cope with. So I've got a question that I was going to ask. You mentioned you were very active. So two yeah. part question here. Do you look back at that as clearly an advantage in this situation in terms of recovery, but then also, I mean, I also tend to think too that people that are super active, and I'm not, <coughs> excuse me, let me preface this question saying like, not saying that, you know, people that are uh, world-class athletes, you have to be at that level. But if you are active, you're going to the gym, you're conscious of what you're eating, you become, and this comes back to what you said originally, you become socially consciously aware of everything that's going on. So one, that being an advantage, but then two, being the advantage and also in your recovery, because you were pretty fit. Yeah, I, I, I was. I'm not anymore. 
Um, and so, yes, I do think that my recovery, certainly in terms of my surgical recovery, has been good. My um, my energy levels, um, I can't walk for more than 10 minutes. Mm. Um, I probably have four hours in a day when my brain works. Um, I I can't exercise. I, I can't even lift a suitcase. Um, so I haven't got back to that. Uh, and I, I'm losing hope that I might ever. Um, I'm you know, maybe coming to the difficult acceptance that this is now my capability. Um, and it's hard, you know? I mean, I'm, I have endless gratitude for the life-saving treatment that I had, but it's utterly life-changing too. And who I am now is a very, very different person. But you're here. But I am here. Yeah. yeah. And I'm doing good things in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure your daughter and your husband appreciate the fact that you're here. I'm sure they do. But it's not easy. No. Nothing's ever easy. easy. No. Question about, you mentioned you lost your mom early and then your dad had cancer. And yeah. a lot has changed in the last five years. And I know across the, the world, this has been a struggle a bit. And I know in the past we've had survivors on from the UK um, that have talked about this. And, and I know our listeners are probably wondering this case. Genetics, was genetics ever yeah. brought up during your journey? It's a good question. So my mother didn't die of cancer. My 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 mother had um, mental health issues and okay. um and took her own life. Um, my dad died of esophageal cancer, and I think you could draw a fairly straight line between his alcohol consumption and his cancer. Um, however, if my reading and I read medical journals these days as if they're novels, um, if my reading is correct, then I think my tumor at the point it was removed had been there for seven years which would have made me 34 when um when that started and i haven't been offered genetic testing now one of the uh one of the issues we have in the uk and this may be an issue elsewhere is that we have no um consistent um care pathway for pancreatic cancer and so depending on where you are in the country you get offered different things I'm aware that in other regions, anyone under the age of 50 is offered um, genetic testing. I haven't been offered it. As it happens, I have left a voicemail this week um, with my team to ask about it. The other thing we don't get here um, that I heard about on your podcast is the molecular residual disease testing. Mm -hmm. That's not offered here. Um, so there's, uh, all, there are all sorts of things that I'm aware of or could have been provided to me still could but are not um, and I will push as hard as I can and you know we'll put our hands in our own pockets if we need to um, but you don't know about these things do you unless you do the research yeah and, and I think the, the one thing at least I I mean from a global perspective in this disease genetics has become a bigger bigger piece over the last five years and it's become a real game changer 
I mean, given the yeah, fact... and I and I think and I think the thing is, so in the in the, the stats in the UK from Cancer Research UK um, say that of the pancreatic cancer patients, um, it's thirty eight percent that are from kind of lifestyle causes. Mm-hmm. So thirty eight percent are caused probably mainly by alcoholic pancreatitis, um, and possibly you know sugar related um, diabetes, and then into mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer, which leaves you know which leaves 62% of us um, with no known cause. And considering my lifestyle, you know, what, and we do, I think all cancer patients do this, don't we? We look back and we go, what did I do? What did I yeah. do wrong? Um, and what could have been mine? A stress, I suppose. Um, I think over many years, I've messed with my metabolism by working crazy hours. 12 hour days lots of traveling you know as those of us that set ourselves crazy high standards do um and possibly and possibly alcohol you know I've never I would never have caused myself called myself a problematic drinker um but I've been known to get drunk at a conference or at a party or whatever um if there's something I could have taken out looking back I could have taken out alcohol other than that I did all right. <laughs> did everything right. <laughs> Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah. So it's easy to to look back on that. And uh, I'm not going to judge, and we don't judge on this podcast. I think that you know the frustrating part about this disease, as you just echoed, is you just don't know, right? There's just this huge. Well, and part it of the might population. not have made any difference, right? Yeah, so exactly. I, I, might have, I might have been a teetotal Buddhist monk, um, and and you still got still it. Got, yeah, still got it. Yeah. And yeah. that's when you and that's when um, science has to turn to genetics. So I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I believe all pancreatic cancer patients should be offered it but in order to build up the research base. If not, if nothing else, um, the, the, the whole one of the issues with pancreatic cancers, there aren't enough of us um, it, to make meaningful studies in each individual country. And therefore, we have to pull our data. We have to. And that means testing everyone for everything and pooling the data. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's some joint studies that are happening right now. Um, you know, we're involved in one, uh, the pre-seed study, which focuses on, you know, uh, genetic mutations in, in uh, healthy patients, because we do know um, here in the States, at least that, you know, up to 10% of the cases in pancreatic cancer are from some like some sort of genetic mutation. You know, the, the, the puzzling thing here with we, just hearing your story is how young you were, right? Like this is uncommon, you know? I mean, if you look at the statistical data, you know, and I've, I've had I've had healthy discussions on this over the years because I think this trend is changing. But when I got into this space 11 years ago, everyone said, well, that's an old person's disease, right? Like people who are in their 70s or, you know, late stage life get this disease. And that is not the case. You know, over the last five years, I can tell you, you know, we could look at our podcast and look at, just over the last year, how many people we've interviewed that are in their 40s and and below, you know, that yeah. have been diagnosed with this disease. Now, is that the majority? No, but it is, it is odd for a female. It's, it's definitely increasing. So yeah. um, again, data from Cancer Research UK that I looked at recently says that pancreatic cancer in the under 25s has increased by 200% in the last decade. Yeah. And that cancers um, in the under 50s, between 25 and 50, has increased by 34%. Now, 
if we if we continue in the UK with the, the upward trend in pancreatic cancer patients, pancreatic cancer is going to represent a quarter of all cancer deaths in the UK. And yet at the moment, it only receives 3% of the funding. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I'm not a research scientist, you know, but I can absolutely see a correlation between no research and no progress. Correct, correct. Well, you need money. They need money to to do the research, right? And it's the same argument here in the United States, right? We have now become, I think in 14 states, it has become the number two killer. Uh, the the report just came out the other day from American Cancer Society here in the United States that puts out large volumes of data on uh, cancer disparities, cancer cases, cancer mortality, and yeah, the the five year survival rate here in the United States has gone up to eleven percent, which you know okay. it, it, you we're, know we're at seven. Yeah, we're 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 making strides. Whoopee! Um, that's a little bit of sarcasm because I don't, I don't feel we're we're at where we need to be. But then if you look at the budgeting of research, and here in the United States, the government is the largest funder of cancer research, which most people don't realize. You know, pancreatic cancer gets less than two percent of the budget, but yeah, again- and that goes back to your previous point because I think people um, look at pancreatic cancer and say only old people get it; they're going to die anyway, Correct. which is utterly distasteful. Yeah, yeah, it's awful. You know, yeah. So should, let's not let's not let's not bother dealing with dementia either. Correct. Then you know, yeah, we'll let Correct. them lose their, lose their minds and starve to death. Correct. We're a dignified, um, you know, we're a dignified <laughs> civil society. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's there's one there's one one of the reasons I think we don't get funding is because it's considered an old person's disease. And they're going to die anyway, which is disgusting yep. um, and not true. We know that there are those of us who, who get it younger. And then and then I think there are two other things that mean that we don't get the awareness and the funding that we deserve. Um, the first is there aren't enough of us and therefore we're not a profitable universe. Um, you know, I'm a marketer. I get it. Breast cancer patients are lots of them. Um, yep. lots of them survive but they all take very expensive drugs whereas you know so in the uk um for every surviving pancreatic cancer patient there are 28 surviving breast cancer patients now what this means is that they can speak 28 times louder than me um and so as a surviving pancreatic cancer patient i need to speak as loudly uh, 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 i need to speak as loudly as 28 breast cancer patients now i don't want any money or research taken away from breast cancer I just want the appropriate amount of funding to go to pancreatic cancer by lives lost. And by lives lost, we're on a we're almost on a par. You know, in the UK, it's 26 people every day from pancreatic, it's 32 people every day from breast cancer. Yeah, these aren't these aren't worlds away. And and then and then I think the other thing that affects the level to which we're we're kind of given media time is we're old, so we're not we're not very interesting or sexy anymore, um, and there aren't many of us, and so there's this. It's almost um, like a downward spiral that the less survivable the cancer, the less survivable the cancer, mm-hmm. because there are fewer people talking about it, and the people who are left talking about it are often, you know, are often older and and not particularly media friendly. And I think if you were to um, represent it as a minority cancer. So if you were to look at the media coverage of cancer, and let's say that pancreatic cancer was only affected um, black people and we didn't get proportionate coverage, you would consider that a diversity issue. And I kind of think media operators need to have a cancer diversity mindset. 
And if they're giving airtime to a breast cancer survivor, they need to give a a proportionate airtime by lives lost to other cancers. Yeah, we are a minority cancer by by, um, lives affected. We are a majority cancer by lives lost. That's so powerful. I I mean, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, You know, I, I think... That is the biggest frustration for us here in the United States. And it's the same thing, I think, globally from talking to global partners and, and what you've just reiterated. You know, it's it's frustrating. I and we talk about unpalatable things. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about what's in the toilet. If I go on a fun run, I'm not going to do a fun run in my bra. What am I going to do? Wave around a poo? Uh, I, uh, from a marketing perspective, there's a challenge here because pancreatic cancer makes us look at things we don't want to talk about. We're embarrassed to talk about. With and so um, you know there is a there is a serious communications and marketing challenge here, which is that talking about pancreatic cancer means talking about things that most people go, oh, do we have to? Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, we have to. Yes, we do. <laughs> so let's talk about that. So I, that was one of my questions here. So you mentioned it and you brought it up. Um, you know, these are taboo topics, right? Yeah. Poo, digestive issues. And I yeah. <laughs> I look back to my own personal experience with my dad. My dad went from, you know, he was uh five foot two, five foot three, 160 pounds. Like he was a well-built guy, he was a laborer his whole life. And then he got, you know, sick and he had digestive issues, was always in the bathroom, got really thin, really skinny, couldn't do any of the work that he used to do. It was embarrassing, right? It's degrading almost. So how do we overcome that? You know, as a, now this is a twofold question here. As a marketer, because I'd love to, to, you know, your day job, you know, there's a marketing piece to this. And, and we've talked about this uh, quite a bit here and on the podcast. But then from a patient, like how, how do we get people, and I don't know, maybe it's like we, we've got, and there's we, we've talked a lot about this here recently about acceptance. People have to accept it themselves, right? Like you have, you, you almost, it's it's like almost like mental health. No one here in the United States talks about mental health because why? Because it's taboo, right? No one wants, wants to go down that, you know, people feel uncomfortable about it. And it's, it's almost, we, I just had a conversation the other day with someone about cancer as a whole. When people get cancer, there's this, this aspect of vulnerability. And maybe this is what this ties into is like, we feel, you feel vulnerable opening up talking about like hey i i've got di- i've had diarrhea for t- for two weeks straight or you know my poo is is not smelling right it's floating it's discolored my urine is really dark but i'm hydrating there's this piece of vulnerability but then there's also the acceptance it almost like having a hall pass like it's okay like here's the past, like you can talk about this. This is acceptable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and if we look at, so if we look at breast cancer, I mean, let's do a direct comparison. Um, 
what it's during my uh, working career as as a as a as a woman um there are a number of times where a direct report or a colleague um has said to me oh you know i think i've got a lump um and you know the conversation's been had um we, we've talked about it where is it when did you find it is it where what really think you should go and see your doctor um and then the next week did you see your doctor about that lump you know it it, it it's talked about now i can't imagine a similar work conversation with someone coming to work saying you know my poo looks a bit greasy and um it's a bit lighter colored than it used to be and it sort of floats would you say that to your boss would you say you know i'm what i'm the reason i'm a bit distracted at work at the moment is that i'm worried about my poo whereas you might say to a boss i found a lump um and i'm a bit worried and i'm getting it investigated at the moment you you might and your boss and your yeah and your boss would say oh my god like do whatever you gotta do like you know take take the the day off yeah 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 whereas um I, whereas I think if you said to someone, you know, my poo floats, it would be a joke. Yeah. Oh, that was you then, was it? Floating <laughs> yeah, in the toilet. Yeah. 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 Um, I wondered who it was every time I went in there and there was a blinking floater. Uh, the, we are dying of embarrassment. But that, but that, yeah, yeah but it, it's so crazy to me. I mean, I know we're both in this, right? So maybe the, the audience listening at home, someone listening to this would go, oh, those two are crazy, right? Talking about poop. But like, it's the same thing. It's, but you know what though? I think too, and maybe you respect this as a marketer for a second. I think breast cancer, and, I, and I've always said, now my mom's a two time breast cancer survivor. So I, I look at the strides they made, fantastic, right? Like, fantastic. I selfishly, you know, Kudos to everyone who's ever put on pink and and you know put on high heels Absolutely. and walk down the street. But they have made it at least here in the United States. And I just saw something on social media. I'm not on there often, but I, I do see like other groups what they're doing because I think it's just it's great to learn from what works. Yeah. And there was an event over the weekend and an endurance event, and there was a breast cancer group, and they posted pictures of women you know, going through breast augmentation, yeah, like with no top on. Yeah. If we go back 10 years, you'd be like, oh my God, like, how could they do that? Like, how can yeah. you put naked women, not, not fully naked, but half naked women on social media? First of all, it's, it's not blurred out. It's not tagged out. You have, you know, women that are- Well, going Facebook to, takes them down, doesn't it? So well, I, it was on Instagram. So, yeah. you know, you, you you didn't have, you know, but it was just the, the post-surgery, right? Like before reconstruction yeah. of surgery. And I was saying to myself, like, wow, like we've been so desensitized, right? To be able, it, it, which is, it, I'm not saying this yeah, in a yeah. negative way, but in a positive way. That was brilliant. There's loads to learn from. Right. right? So yeah. I, like, how do we do that for, for poo, right? Like, so, do we- so- so I've got a, I've got a number of ideas. So what I'm I'm currently planning. Um, I've bought the domain name clueintheloo.com. Um, I love it. And uh, I've talked to various people, um, Public Health England, Bowel Cancer, Pancreatic Cancer, various charities. So the things that I'm bringing together um, are um, first of all a, a kind of this digestive the, the what we're asking for and the digestive health questionnaire is one of the key ones. But one of the things I was thinking of doing is a bit like we have a Macmillan um, cancer charity here in the UK that helps people living with cancer and they have a coffee morning. So I was wondering about doing coffee mornings um, with poo shaped cakes. So lots of 
lots of um you know the cocoa pops that have been made into little poos and the um little mr whippies and we could have a whole selection of decorated cakes that look like poo and i think that could be a lot of fun um in the uk we have a, a charity called copper feel so it's a saying in the uk there's copper feel of that and it's um it means you know to, to touch your body and um they've used that for breast awareness so it's a copper feel of your breasts and it's a copper feel of your testes so I want to do, and they've done great things like a number of our supermarkets and um, the bras. When you buy a bra, a certain amount of money goes to the Copperfield charity. And so I want to do that with toilet paper manufacturers. Um, I, I want to, you know, and I want to get hashtag clue in the loo um, really going. And I, I want to, um, uh, you know, a, a do sessions with medics on precise questions you know, you don't say, have your bowel movements changed? You say, what colour is it? Is it formed? How does it behave? You know, you ask specific and precise questions. And a whole I can imagine a whole school school education. You know, I would say peanut butter or lighter, you've got a problem. Yeah. Um, and I can imagine saying, here's here, we have a um uh you know, marmite in the UK is a kind of um yeast, yeast extract that we say. So if it's black, you've got a problem. Yeah. yeah. If it's the colour of Nutella, you're all right, probably. If it's the colour of peanut butter or lighter, um, time to, and, and it consistently so, time to, to have a look at that. And so there's, I think there's some good stuff that we could do. We can have a lot of fun with it. Um, and um, I'm talking to a science educator, a science communicator about helping people understand what healthy poo looks like and why. You know, let's get all the ingredients, mix loads of butter in, see if it floats. Oh, look, that's what happens when you've got fat in your poo. Yeah. So I think we can do lots of fun things. Um, it's it's going to be challenging, you know, it, this, um, and we do have an oldie population. It's distasteful, but I think we can have a bit of fun with it. I think, I think we need to go puerile um, and childish and just talk about poo. <laughs> But this is how the conversation starts, right? Like we got to start somewhere and, and these yeah. could be life changing conversations. Think about Ooh. this, you know, the conversation we're having. <laughs> so if one person listening wakes up tomorrow after listening to this episode and sees their poop floating and that it's black. Yeah, we we've done oh, that. Right? It, this yeah. this this has worked, right? Like this is yeah. these conversations yeah. have yeah. worked. So that's. I went on. I went on Sky News and um, one of our UK national cable channels here um, last week, and I took a deep breath before I went on live. I told them in advance I'm going to be using the word poo, and you know that was embarrassing for me. But you know, of course, it was. I had to take a deep breath and know that my business connections, you know, I'd, I speak at conferences on marketing <laughs> for multi-million pound businesses for a living. That's what I do. And yet I go on national news and I talk about poo. poo. You know, and and yeah, I get, you know, and, and I get comments on LinkedIn saying, oh, so you're talking about poo on the news. <laughs> from from people I might be doing a conference session for and part of me goes slightly pink in the face and part of me goes yeah <laughs> and you know if this is what I've got to do this is what I've got to do there we go my mission talk about poo <laughs> well we're, we're going to normalize it right yeah. we've got to normalize the the conversation and and have acceptance and and again like 
make it okay to talk about these subjects because yeah. they matter. Yeah. And it's not the only symptom, of course. Let's, let's just take a moment on the podcast to make very clear Correct. that um, what's in the toilet is not the only symptom of pancreatic cancer and you can have pancreatic cancer and your proof may not float. Correct. So it is, the, what I've been saying is, um, it's not that it's the only symptom, but if you do have this symptom, something is wrong. Correct. And, yeah, and so for, for, for anyone who's thinking, oh, well, I can't possibly have pancreatic cancer because my poo doesn't float, that is not true. Correct. Um, but for anyone who, who does have regularly pale floating poo with a bit of a kind of oil slick on the water, um, that is something to be concerned about. And it might be dietary, you might just be eating too much fat, or it might be that your body isn't processing fat. And again, that might not be cancer, it might be pancreatitis. Um, so, but the point is that if you have persistently floating poo that's pale in colour, leaves a bit of an oil slick, something's wrong. Yeah, get checked. Yeah. Right. Um, I've got a couple questions here left for you. Uh, my first one, and this is a, I, I preface all my questions as they are loaded. Um, there's never any right or wrong, but you know, what advice would you give someone going through this? You know, let's say they just got diagnosed this week. Um, you know, given what you've gone through, your experience, what would that advice be? Um, don't apply the statistics to yourself. They have no prognostic value whatsoever. Um, so uh, as a campaigner, the survival statistics, the shocking um, stats are really, really, really useful. Yeah. As a patient, they are the opposite of useful. And um, you as an individual are not an average. And so whilst the statistics will smack you around the face and punch you in the stomach every time you hear them, they have no prognostic value whatsoever to you as an individual, would be the first thing I'd say. In the UK, I would say go to Pancreatic Cancer UK support services. There are probably similar organisations in the countries where you are. So seek out the specific charity for pancreatic cancer in your country see if they've got a support line, a nurse line, etc. Because you cannot assume that the medics who are dealing with you know anything about it, because it's poorly understood. Um, their information is out of date. You know, you see that meme, don't you, which is don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Well, I would say don't confuse your medical degree with my, um, you know, my lived experience and my total focus and dedication to finding out about this condition with the half hour you spent on a lecture in it 10 years ago. So the uh, be empowered and know that it is very, very possible that your medics don't know very much about this condition and educate yourself. And the third would be to um, seek the support of other um, patients and carers. So join, you know, I'm in a good Facebook community here in the UK. There are there are others around. Join those communities, connect with other patients, um, and remember that people do survive. Love it. Where are you in your treatment now? I know we we talked about the Whipple, you did the eight rounds. So I assume you're going for scans to make sure everything's in good order. Well, that would be a, that would be an interesting assumption, wouldn't it? Um, so in the UK, that our scans are not offered as a standard. Um, so depending on where you are um, in the UK, you may get offered scans, you may not. 
Um, my team have, on request, um, uh, permitted me to have annual scans. Um, what we what they do here is if you have some symptoms you are concerned about, then they will scan you. Mm-hmm. And and I had an interesting discussion with my oncologist about this because um, I said, well, why is that? Why wouldn't you scan routinely? Because obviously recurrence rates are, are quite high. And he said, well, it's quite an existential question. He said, because if you have a recurrence, you're going to die. And so do you want to know sooner or later? Um, and, and, and it was really it was quite interesting. You know, he, he said that the problem with recurrent pancreatic cancer is that it's unsurvivable. And knowing sooner has not been shown to change the outcomes. And so it's, it's quite an interesting existential debate here, which is if I am dying, would I rather know sooner and prepare for that? Or would I rather live normally in ignorance for longer? And I do think that's quite an interesting um, line of debate for another day. I've, um, I've opted for annual scan. Uh, in terms of treatment, I'm on. I take sixty creon a day. I take masses of supplements that I've researched myself. Um, I have ongoing malabsorption, really bad malabsorption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't want to know about my current toilet habits. We've talked a lot about poo, but you know, I'll save you some of it. Um, and uh, I'm currently trying treatment for small intestine bacterial overgrowth, um, which for patients are very prone to mm-hmm. and uh, can really contribute to fatigue etc because essentially you've got an overgrowth of, of bacteria that are eating up all the nutrients so you don't get them um, so we're going to give give the appropriate antibiotics a go and see if that um, helps me any um, so yeah I'm kind of adjusting to life within a much changed body um, and working hard on the gratitude and acceptance of the body that I have, which lets me down regularly and isn't capable of all the things I want to do in life, but I do have a life. So from a lifestyle standpoint, I know you said you're still working, you're not as active, but you're still here. Yeah. What's been... I guess the, the question would be like, how do you, how do you handle that? Cause that's gotta be very hard. Uh, I don't know the answer to that because I'm not sure I am handling it particularly well. Um, it's a work in progress, really. I, um, I've always pushed myself hard. Um, you know, I've come back into my business and I've picked up the, the project that we had had investment for, which obviously went away, walking definition of founder risk. Um, so I've, I've, I've picked up, um, that part of my business and we are now, as, as I speak today, we are, we are kicking off software development next week. Um, the business plan is for, you know, um, massive growth creator. So that my, my planning folder is called global domination. If that gives you any sense of scale, um, um, you know, picking that back up when I, on March, like March 21, I got, uh, had my scan results. Uh, the oncologist called and she said, you know, we've seen no evidence of disease, no change from your last scan. Burst into tears. I had a cup of tea. I am British. And um, turned to my husband and I said, you know, that means I can build software, right? I said, if you want to, darling. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and we are now doing that. So, you know, I push myself hard, you know, um, I want to set up this Clue in the Loo charity. I'm doing campaigning and spokesperson stuff for Pancreatic Cancer UK in, in uh, here. And I, I'm speaking at conferences, I'm doing events. I have a 10 year old and occasionally I see my husband. Um, and, you know, I like to cuddle the cat. Um, so, you know, I'm back to the person I was, I suppose, when the doctor said you might be doing too much. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. My last question here, and then we're going to share where our audience can connect with you. And if you've listened to the podcast, you, you probably knew this was coming. Uh, this is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. But what's your definition of the word pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Um, the worst thing that ever happened to me. Uh, it's um, it's a killer, and it's being ignored. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't. I mean, other than obviously the medical definition of what it is as a condition. Um, it's like a dirty little secret in the corner for these old people with their poo problems who are dying. Except I'm not old. And I'm not dead. It's powerful, and but we're changing that, right? So this is this is the part where you know this podcast having the opportunity to share your journey and talk about this stuff, you know, as a marketer, this is how we, we change the narrative, right? We got to have these discussions. We got to, we got to make sure that people know it's acceptable and it's okay to have these discussions, right? And to your point, you know, there are other symptoms, but you know, this is a pretty big one. Um, you know, changes, well, the point is it's there in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see it, right? And there's these changes that happen that occur. Not to say that everyone's getting going to have pancreatic cancer, but something's going on, right? Like there's something under the hood of the car. You know, you brought up the, I love how you brought up the analogy of your heart, right? Like if your heart is racing, you're going to go to the cardiologist. If your car is not performing right, if you're putting in the same gasoline, and every time you go to start your car, your car backfires, you know, three times, and then you get a mile away from your house and the car just shuts off, you're going to the mechanic to check it out, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that's the same ideology. You know, we use two examples there, you know, naturally your heart and also your car, like your vehicle that we know people would go running to their cardiologist or their general practitioner or to their mechanic. And I think that's the same heightened awareness we need to have um, with bowel movements, right? Like if something's not right, and we're not saying over like, you know, like a day, like, you know, you could have- No, no, more than two weeks. Yeah. You know, if it's a persistence, you know, we you really need to be aware and something's wrong or, you know, something is up. Um, mm -hmm. And it's okay. It's okay to do that, right? It's okay to call the doctor. It's okay to tell your spouse. It's okay to tell your boss even that like, hey, I got to take 
a day off because I need to figure out what's going on here. Go to the, like in the United States, we have all these walk-in clinics now. I don't know if they have them in the UK where, you know, you don't necessarily need an appointment. You just walk in, put your name on the list and the doctor will see you at some point, you know, within the next hour or two. Absolutely. And also don't panic, you know? Um, So if you have a lump on your breast, um, you're told to go check it out, probably not cancer, but it might be. And um, and I think the same is true. You know, the, the sort of symptoms that, that, that we've been talking about um, could be colitis, could be Crohn's, could be pancreatitis, could be pancreatic cancer, could be a neuroendocrine tuna, could be eating too many takeaways, um, yeah. could be drinking too much alcohol, could be, um, and you also get floating poo if you eat lots of fiber. So, you know, a vegan, vegetarian, high fiber diet might also cause it. And so there are... Um, there are things that cause it. The point is to be alert to it. And if you can't draw a straight line between I'm doing this and this is happening, then it needs further investigation. Yeah. So powerful. Bryony, where is the best place our audience listening at home throughout the world? If someone heard something today, they want to connect, they want to follow you. I know you, you said you're speaking a lot. You're very active in the space there in the UK. Where's the best place for that audience to connect with you? So on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PanCanBry, which is PanCan and then B-R-Y. Um, and I'm active on, on Twitter and Instagram, mainly r- around pancreatic cancer. Um, depending on when this goes uh, goes out, um, as I say, I've registered the domain name clueintheloo.com. There's nothing there at the moment, but there will be. Um, so connect with me on social media and um, clueintheloo.com as soon as I get to it on my list or very long list of things. Uh, so yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Bryony, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. It's been my honor to share your journey with pancreatic cancer. And thank you for all you're doing in the UK and around the world because social media is just not the UK. Anyone from around the world is seeing the content you're putting out. So uh, the more stories we share, the more people that we get engaged. You brought up the breast cancer thing before. I've always said, you know, breast cancer here in the United States is a 250,000 person disease. Pancreatic cancer is like 62,000. So that's like a five to one. So we need to scream, you know, we need to attract five more people into our circle. So the more and more and more that we continue to to message and raise awareness on all these platforms, the more success we're going to have, the more money we're going to bring in, the more awareness we're going to bring. Um, so thank yeah. you for all you're doing in the space. Thank you for allowing us to share your journey on this podcast. It's been an honor. Thank you, Dino. Um, the phrase I always use is that dead people have very quiet voices. And I think as a survivor of pancreatic cancer, as the one that stands for the nine who died proportionally, it's my responsibility to speak and to speak loudly. So thank you for giving me that opportunity today. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this podcast and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. (laughs) 